0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Kavi Chavla, and I'm one of the partners at Baton Global, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome a global audience today to a live recording of our Baton Salon podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be hosting Mark Gallagher, a Formula One expert. It is perhaps the understatement of the year, if not the decade, to say that we live in interesting times. The world we live in is changing at an ever quicker pace and at least for me, 2020 has really brought home that we now live in a quantum world. We can either know the location or the speed of an object, but not two at the same time. In speaking with Mark today, we're going to discuss the rapid pace of change that the world is undergoing, and we're going to learn from some of his experiences while with Formula One to understand how they're applicable to today's, again, rapid pace of change, and in a world where the competitive, regulatory and business environment is rapidly pivoting, given the pressures within and outside organizations. Mark, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Pleasure to have you on.
1: Really uh, an absolute delight, Kavi, to joining you today. And uh, I'm so happy to have this opportunity to share some insights
0: perfect thanks mark and again i know we've had a chance to catch up in the past but i think it'd be wonderful for our audience if you could just share a little bit more about your background uh and again formula one is uh near and dear to many people's hearts who are uh joining our podcast today so yeah we'd love to learn a little bit more about your experiences with formula one as well sure well my background very
1: is is uh quite kind of monotrack. I have spent my entire career working in Formula 1 since I graduated from university. Uh, Back in 1983, I did a degree in business management and economics. And I think as a result of that, I've been fascinated by the commercial side of Formula 1 from the get-go. So although I spent the first few years working in the media, I then transitioned through into working in team management, I joined the board of directors of two Formula One teams, uh, Jordan Grand Prix, uh, nothing to do with Jordan, the country, everything to do with an entrepreneur called Eddie Jordan, who uh, set up the team. We were a startup Formula One team back in 1991. Uh, one of our early recruits was a young German driver by the name of Michael Schumacher, who went on to uh, achieve great things uh, during his career. Um, and then I, I kind of finished my my team management experience at Red Bull uh, racing, uh, a fully owned Formula One team subsidiary of the energy drinks company Red Bull. Uh, but just to put it straight, Red Bull don't sponsor the team; they own the team. And uh, I was part of the management there. I then finished my executive career in Formula One, uh, leading an engineering company called Cosworth, which is in Formula One terms a very famous engine manufacturer. They, um, I think, they have the third most winning record in terms of engines uh, behind Ferrari and Mercedes-Benz. And uh, I had a, a fantastic time there. Uh, I'm not an engineer, but I had incredibly bright people working for me, designing and developing powertrain technology and software and electronics and lots of uh, great technologies, which we then provided to uh, Formula One teams. And then, Kavi, the last eight years have been an extraordinary journey where I yeah. um, I kind of hit 50 and thought, you know, I'm going to use my expertise in different ways. So I set up my own uh, quite specialist consulting uh, business performance insights. And I do a lot of speaking uh, at corporate events around the world yeah. about what we have learned in Formula One, how that can be applied to business and some sort of fairly Sort of broad topics, uh, some quite big thinking that I enjoy doing from having worked in this very specialist arena. But as a result of my experience in Formula One, you know, I've traveled the world, met lots of amazing business leaders and uh, negotiated deals with some of them uh, to be involved in our industry. So I I kind of am using a lifetime of experience in this industry to share uh, and hopefully help uh, others.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Mark. And again, that's part of the reason we are really thrilled to have you on the podcast today, is to tap into that global experience. But as you also said, you know, over a lifetime at Formula One, again, in the the many years that you've part been part of the industry, it's undergone tremendous change. Yeah. You know, I remember 20 years ago, the racing world, including Formula One, was so different than it was even two years ago. And again, between even you could say January 2020, and now November 2020, it has probably undergone an even bigger revolution. Uh, So again, we're really, really excited to to tap into that experience and expertise. Um, So when we really think about and look at change, I think one of the things we hear from a lot of clients, and I'm sure you've seen it yourself, is understanding change is one of the biggest challenges that many organizations, many leaders face. Right. Again, oftentimes there, there's a rapid internal dynamics that are changing. Then there are external forces that sometimes are creating positive and negative, may align or misalign with what's going on internally. You know, And again, these can range from competitive to macroeconomic to, again, in 2020, a global pandemic. So again, organizations have a really difficult time understanding, framing that change so they can make sense of it. Right. So kind of keeping that in mind, you know, again, Formula One, as we talked about, it's gone through rapid change as well as slow change over a long period of time. So I'd love to hear some of your comments around how you at Formula One understood change. And again, Formula One operates as a, at a global level, right, as Formula One. But then you do individual races, you're adding new races, taking some off. So you also operate very much at a local level. Right. And so, yeah, hearing some of those dynamics and how you manage that, I think, be really insightful.
1: Well, um, I'll try and package this into a, a relatively concise answer. Um, the, the reality is that in Formula One, we we accept that change is ever present. And I think that's the first thing to recognize is that there is no point in saying let's manage a period of change because change is never going to end. And the reason we see that in Formula One is let's just take two things let's take uh, compliance and technology so compliance is forever changing and I think that definitely applies in lots of other industries and because the regulatory framework that we work within is constantly changing and we have new rules effectively every year in formula one to try and slow us down and keep our sports safe um, because of that regulatory environment we're having to deal with those regulations we have to reinventing our technology looking at, how we can make sure that we're fully compliant before we do anything else. Secondly, because of our obsession with technology, because a Formula One car is simply a big piece of technology that integrates um, automotive engineering, aerospace engineering, and information technology into creating a 360 kilometre per hour fully connected device. That's what a Formula One car is. Um, Because of that technological landscape, we need to keep up to date with what's happening there and technology is ever moving. Um, I just gave a presentation prior to this podcast uh, to a group of executives in Germany, and that was a a CIO conference. And we were talking about the data driven environment. Well, if you look at digital transformation alone, I mean, it's accelerating. It's not slowing down. It's uh, the way in which it's connecting us and enabling us to develop smart, fully connected systems, And now to utilize the power of, for example, artificial intelligence, you know, new chapters and new books are being written about the digital transformation story Mm -hmm. alone. So we have an acceptance of change. And then the next part of the acceptance after acceptance is we say, well, what can we do with it? How can we make the most of it? So whenever new regulations are posted, you know, we look at the new regulations for what they do say, but then we also look at the regulations for what they don't say, because we're looking for opportunities to innovate. And so there's a constant, relentless quest for a real hunger for how we can make the most of change as it comes towards us. And to your sort of final point, in terms of talking about all the changes that of, of internal and external that can happen, If you look at COVID-19 this year, um, I mean, the the date, the time and the place that it affected our industry was uh, Friday the 13th, which in in some countries is not Mm -hmm. a very lucky date. Friday the 13th of March, Melbourne, Australia, it should have been the first day of our season. And that morning, that race was cancelled with the spectators already queuing outside the gates, So there was our date, there was our time, there was our place when COVID brought our whole industry to a standstill. And of course, there was lots of panic going on, people saying, what's going to happen next? Will we be able to race at the next event? Or, But because we're an industry packed full of smart people, everyone took a step back and looked at the big picture and quickly realised this is not something that's going to be fixable quickly. So, how do we respond? And I think for me, one of the really interesting takeaways from this period of this particular change that we've had this year is that we've seen two extraordinary outcomes within Formula One. First of all, Mm -hmm. um, we immediately set about repurposing our design manufacturing capabilities to develop healthcare equipment to solve Mm -hmm. the shortage of ventilators and breathing aids here in Europe and to provide those uh, designs uh, free online for anyone around the world to, to access. And every Formula One team contributed to that. We put together a project developing ventilator components and breathing aids and you know, did some remarkable work in just a few days because of mm-hmm. our rapid prototyping environment. So there was pivoting the business in times of crisis. And then the other thing that happened was we realized we couldn't have real racing, so we pivoted to virtual racing and esports, electronic sports, which is a very fast growing sector, multi-billion dollar sector already. Suddenly we were able to put on a virtual Uh, World Championship. And of course, for our Formula One drivers of today, who have all grown up uh, with computer gaming and devices and, and functionality, I mean, actually, it was a brilliant opportunity to show their skills in the virtual world. And that has not only provided us with entertainment for our fans, it's actually opened up entire new demographics in terms of audiences for us, because we've been able to see huge numbers of You know Gen Z, and can you believe even Gen Alpha? You know, ten-year-olds, for whom you know computer gaming is all part of their their life experience. And so this year again, very difficult. But because we have pivoted quickly and accepted what's happening, we are suddenly seeing opportunities unfold before us, which are going to have a permanent effect on the other side of COVID nineteen.
0: That's brilliant. I'd like to dive deeper into two of the comments you made. So the first is, you know, kind of talking about that pivot, you know, you mentioned that there's an innovative mindset, right? And again, could you talk a little bit about, again, is that innovative mindset endemic to formula one, just because it is such a fast industry? Has it been cultivated? Um, as again, that's especially in highly compliance driven industries such Mm as healthcare, financial services, um, you know, manufacturing where health and safety are, are critical. Innovation tends to be slower because there is a, the cost of noncompliance is extremely high, right? Mm-hmm. So we it tends to be more of that mindset of if it fits in the box, great. If it doesn't, let's take our time, right? So again, but again, Formula One, highly compliant. And again, the cost of failure is, is very, very high, right? Usually, yeah. again, tragic. Right. So, again, really interested to understand how that emerged in a bit more context around that. Because, again, that's, I think, really important, perhaps, takeaway for many of our our participants who operate in those different industries.
1: Well, I find the compliance discussion a really interesting one because I speak for pharmaceutical companies and Mm -hmm. people in the banking sector all the time. And this topic comes up. And one of the things that I comment on is that. In Formula One, if we all simply became fixated on compliance, we would all build 10 identical race cars and no one would have competitive advantage. So actually being fixated on compliance alone isn't that helpful. What we need to do is to say the compliance is there as a baseline. And actually the innovation has to come from as I said earlier, what's not covered by the compliance. So the, the, the regulator knows what the regulator knows, and they come up with a whole set of compliance about that, about that. But actually, if you look at Formula One, I think there are, I mean, the team of regulators is probably less than 20. The number mm. of engineers across the 10 Formula One teams is about 2,000. So there are 2,000 bright people trying to make the cars go faster and 20 people trying to regulate them. So necessarily, the compliance doesn't cover all potential avenues of interest. And then we come to the really key thing, Kavi, which I find uh, really interesting. And that is that we don't have a combative relationship with our regulator. We don't see the regulator as the handbrake trying to stop us. Mm. We know that the regulator is there to do a very serious job, which is to keep our industry safe, to look after all of our interests, to look at the big picture of our industry. So how we work as teams is We look at that compliance and we make sure that we adhere to that. But we then look at the opportunities, perhaps not covered by the compliance, and we look to our teams to come up with some really great thinking, creative solutions, integrating technologies, perhaps from outside of Formula One, and seeing how we can come up with something that's going to be a clear competitive step. And then we do a really important piece of work. We then go to the regulator and we share that information with them. So we go to the regulator and we say look we've come up with this amazing piece of technology or system or process that we would like to implement and we believe it's not we we believe it's fully compliant uh, in fact it's not even covered in the rules what's your opinion and the regulator will give us a judgment and that is done on an on a confidential basis between mm-hmm. the regulator and the team and this is why when you turn up at the first race of the season and you see a team, that is clearly got a competitive advantage, one of the things that we all know is that there probably isn't anything going on that's non-compliant because it will right. have been checked with the regulator in the first place. And I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. It happened this year in 2020. So one of the, if you imagine the steering wheel on a car, it turns left, it turns right or it goes straight ahead. That's what's what, what it does except that the technical director of the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team is an aerobatics pilot in his hobby and so along with some of his colleagues he was thinking well you know on an aeroplane you can turn that joystick left right but you can also push it forward and back right could we do that in a Formula One car? So they 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 looked at what would be the benefits of having a steering wheel that you can push away from you as well as pull towards you. And they realized that that could be used to alter the suspension geometry as you went into a particular corner and that would actually improve the car's performance. So they... They developed precisely that system. They got it checked by the regulator, the regulator approved it and when Mercedes Benz turned up to the first race of this season they had the first ever flight control type steering system on a Formula One car. All the competition were upset, Mm -hmm. mainly because they hadn't thought of it, (laughs) Uh, but the point of the matter is that the innovation is there and the thing I love about that story is that going back to the start of your question, The innovation mindset in Formula One is based on a fundamental principle of interrogating and questioning every established way of doing things. So, what if there's something that, if there's any area of our technology or our operations that someone thinks is fully developed and foolproof? we will want to know, we want to break that box open and re-look at that. We want to look at every area of our technology, our operations and our delivery, because questioning established ways of doing things these days inevitably opens up opportunity because there'll be something out there that we can import and do things better, differently, more efficiently, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's what we're looking for. So there's the, the, the curiosity factor within our industry leads to that constant innovation.
0: So I guess you're kind of picking up there on that curiosity factor. As you talked about competitive advantage comes from, you know, and I think the Mercedes example was tremendous where again it was an innovation come, you know, from external, one of the members of the team thought about it and moved it forward and now they've created a comparative advantage where one perhaps didn't exist. Right? But as you talked about technology is critical, which means there is a threat of constantly being disrupted when a different team is better or as a you know as an industry when there's another sport that it's able to attract and adapt. So when it comes to thinking about looking at new technologies integrating data and and again I think your um, characterization of a Formula 1 car is a tremendous piece of really fast technology put together is is apt. How have organizations Ensure that again one thing is you talked about the curiosity mindset but from a tactical practical level right mm-hmm. how do you go through determining which technologies are worthwhile to explore mm-hmm. which ones aren't right because again i think again about finance about um you know agriculture industries technologies constantly being pushed out there how do you determine what's kind of the frameworks you use to help make the best decisions
1: yeah um Technology for technology's sake is not very interesting. We we want technology that does something practical, that moves us forward, and that doesn't compromise our outcomes. So having, for example, a great innovation or a great piece of technology that turns out to not be robust enough or reliable enough or compromises some other parts of our system, that that's of very little interest. So how we work within Formula One is teams will have innovation working groups so these are people drawn from all parts of the business who will evaluate technologies ideas opportunities and look at look at everything from you know the cost the benefit to you know the 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 unforeseen or the the known knowns and the unknown knowns and and think about what the potential application of that's going to be and its impact impact long term so inevitably you then end up with a whole series of of outcomes. So that innovation working group will say, here's something that is such a brilliant idea, relatively easy to deploy, isn't going to compromise us. Let's have it on board for the next race. Um, There might be something else. It's a great idea, but needs a little bit more thought put into it. We need to make sure that going back to compliance that it's fully compliant. Then we need to make sure it's fit for purpose. And it's actually that a great idea that sounds wonderful theoretically is actually going to be fit for purpose in the heat of battle. Um, that, that we need to probably need to deploy it. So there's this evaluation that's constantly going on. And one of the things that I find interesting is that when you actually look into the detail, the granular detail of uh, the, the major advances, mm-hmm. very often it's been a piece of avant-garde thinking, which I think in many I think known Formula One organisations wouldn't even get wouldn't even get a uh, hearing. You know, people would say you've got to go, you've got to be crazy. Um, we've seen we've seen a number of examples of that, and where that's led us to realizing is that is that companies and leadership teams are fundamentally risk averse, and there's there's a real comfort in having full knowledge of everything and how it works, and uh, no one wants to take risk, and people associate risk. as as being essentially a bad word, something that's risking the business. Well, of course, in Formula One, we're not interested in risking the business. We're certainly not interested in risking the driver's welfare. So, but yet there's an acceptance that you can't innovate without taking risks. So therefore what we do is we will evaluate something and say, okay, how can we test that? And of course, Mm -hmm. these days, technological ecosystem being what it is, we can very often design and test something in a virtual environment. You know, we can, we effectively create a digital version of that piece of technology before we ever go to manufacture it and and test it in the real world. So we can actually go down the line of of evaluating something before we ever get to the stage of scaling that and actually bringing it into operational deployment. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the ability to create that, to take the curiosity and to say that, that curiosity is going to lead us as an organization to try new things, but we're not going to try new things on day one in the front line, in the middle of a race, because that would be, you know, that would be impractical and it it wouldn't be sensible. Mm -hmm. But what we will do is we will evaluate something behind closed doors and if, and test it in a meaningful way to the point where, you know, the proof of concept is clearly there. And at that point we will perhaps trigger, you know, bringing it uh, through to, through to the frontline operations. So that curiosity and that prepar- preparedness to take risk, I think is an essential part of our of our culture and our mindset. And I think that's where, as I say, we look back and realize that over time, it's those organizations who take those slightly off-center ideas and mm-hmm. say, yeah, let's take a look at that because there might be something in this that gives us an opportunity to steal that competitive advantage that we're all desperate to achieve.
0: So, yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I'd like to dive deeper into that avant-garde thinking and and specifically, again, from your experience, but also in some of the work you're currently doing, you know, as you talked about, organizations generally are risk averse and leaders are generally risk averse, right? Yet, the critical change does come, the, the progress, the comparative competitive advantage, differentiation comes from the deliberate application of that avant-garde thinking in a very deliberate innovation process, right? So you talked about innovation working groups and each team has one. Can you give us a little more insight into the structure of that? And part of the reason I'm asking is you will see a lot of large organizations have innovation teams, yet they are within a highly bureaucratic structured process driven organization where, you, you know, innovation Isn't embraced in terms of its process, right? So, again, it's where some organizations, you know, Google, for example, they say, okay, great, we're going to carve you out, you go do what you want because we know in corporate process you will die, right? You can't innovate. So, how does, yeah, how is that managed within Formula One or teams, again, to enable that innovation? um, Yeah, to structure it because that, again, is a corporate organizational challenge.
1: So I'm really pleased that you mentioned, um, you know, hierarchies and bureaucracy. So there is the handbrake on innovation because the further you have to go up the line to get a decision, you know, the, the harder it's going to be. And our innovation working groups are plugged into the chief technical officer. The chief technical officer will be on the innovation working group. And empowerment is key in this. So the innovation working group is empowered to innovate. The CTO, his job is to ensure that his people are coming up with the right ideas and bringing them through. And because he's sitting at board level, you know, C-suite guy, he can then talk to his colleague, the chief executive and say, you know, within our, you know, within our plan for this year, we are going to do X, Y, Z. And we really believe this is going to give us a, a, a competitive edge. So what are we looking at there? We're looking at quite a flat structure. We're looking mm-hmm. at very short lines of communication. We're very much looking at a networked organization where people are empowered mm-hmm. to deliver and work with each other. And that, that there's a phenomenal strength in that. And with apologies to anyone on the call or who lis- who's listening, who has connections with Toyota, but One of the things that's interesting about Toyota is that, you know, they're a legendary company, uh, which, you know, depending which year it is, you know, the world's largest car manufacturer. And, of course, incredibly famous for KZN, continuous improvement. Uh, I think the Toyota Corolla is the most efficiently produced, mass produced car in the world. So Toyota did Formula One uh, from 2002 until 2009, spent two and a half billion dollars and never won a race. And when you talk to people, in fact, I'm writing a feature about this at the moment for a a magazine. When you write, when you look at why Toyota was fundamentally unable to compete to win in Formula One, it comes down to a lack of innovation Mm -hmm. and a, a real adversity to risk um, incredibly hierarchical, vertical structure that went all the way from the, the team in Cologne in Germany all the way back to Tokyo. Uh, as their chief technical officer told me, former chief technical officer told me, he said, when we would ask for a, a decision from head office, we would probably get 20 questions back. So it it, it became an impediment to moving forward. And um, and in fact, the day he left the team, he was, t- he was told by, by his boss at Toyota, Um, I'm sorry, the reason we're letting you go is you make too many decisions based on your own expertise and not enough decisions based on the Toyota way of doing things. So here's a company that's tied up in process Mm -hmm. and tied up, bound up in process to the extent that they really cannot see the wood for the trees. And I mean, one of the other things that I found really interesting about that case study was that every year Toyota's internal measurement for how they were performing showed an upward trajectory. Every year their car was 2 to 3% more competitive than the previous year, and they applauded each other and they said, what a great job we're doing. You know, We've got, we got all the lines are going in an upward trajectory. That's great. The problem is the competition were improving at 5 to 8% per year, and so the benchmarking was wrong. So here you ha- here you have the kind of counter, counter uh, uh-huh. story to how you need to be successful in formula 1 and going back to the company that I worked with red bull i mean Cavi, think i mean just just think about the fact that a company whose core competency is this was to create the energy drinks market which is what Dietrich Mateschitz yep. did back in 19, 1987 to create the energy drink uh, to make a fizzy, sugary drink full of caffeine and market that around the world. That, a comp- that that company was able to buy a Formula One team and turn it around in four years to become four times world champions, to build a better Formula One car than Ferrari, than Toyota, than Honda, than BMW, than Mercedes-Benz, than Renault. How is that possible? Well, the answer to that is it came down to Red Bull injecting the culture that they have is an energy drinks business which is free thinking um empowerment of people creativity innovation uh questioning everything and so and to this day all the way through to 2020 red bull wins grand Prix every yep. every year and and i think to myself if i was a board director of renault or ferrari or bmw i'd be thinking What are they doing that we're not doing? And the answer to that is the culture, that networked organization, those flatter structures, that lack of bureaucracy, and supercharging the way in which they communicate internally so that they get rapid decisions that enable them to bring innovations
0: to market in short order. So to dive deeper on that, if I'm Toyota then, right, and I say, fair enough, Our culture, our way of doing business, right? Highly bureaucratic, highly vertical organizational structures, very process-oriented, perhaps doesn't suit to Formula One, hence we don't compete in that industry, right? We choose to, we self-select out. And if I'm, you know, Red Bull, say, okay, great, this industry is well-suited to our culture. I guess what's your point of view on, is it, is that the correct way, incorrect way for leaders to kind of think about their organizations or is it do, do all organizations need to transition towards being, again, understanding comparative advantage can come from process, but is it defensible? Is innovation the only defensible comparative advantage? Again, you know, because we don't thinking, want everyone, but yeah. so yeah,
1: I think it's uh, it's kind of going back to our compliance discussion. I mean, you need both you know, that systems and processes are our friends. Um, you know, it means that the organization isn't depending on isn't dependent on, on individuals for delivering success. It's de- dependent on well-proven processes and systems. But the processes and systems have to work for us. We can't work for the process and systems. And so we need to, to that's why we need to question how we're doing things. Is there a way that we can deliver a better, faster, more, Efficient uh, outcome, and you know the the Toyota story for me is an interesting one because that they're they're smart people. I mean, no question about it. Very smart organization, and they but they became confused about why they they couldn't adapt, and that uh, that adaptability, that agility that they needed wasn't there because their systems, the Toyota way. I remember their chief executive giving a presentation and saying, you know, we haven't won yet because the Toyota way takes time. It it never reached that point. So you needed Mm -hmm. to question in Formula One that way, that process didn't work. It wasn't valid. doesn't mean it's not valid when you're producing, you know, millions of road cars every day, but it wasn't valid in in a fast moving, much more dynamic environment like Formula One. And I think, you know, Kavi, when we look at other industries, and I know we're going to talk about some of the sort of broader changes we're seeing in the world you know when you when you think about Elon Musk and Mm -hmm. uh, I I remember I remember in Monte Carlo probably probably 14 years ago seeing the seeing the, the very initial Tesla sports car and I remember standing looking at it thinking what's all what's this about you know electrification what is it is this real is this for real but it was actually quite a long time ago and you look at Tesla today and all the people who've been proven wrong, you know, I've sat with industry analysts who said it would never work. I've sat with automotive engineers who've said it would never work. You know, you talk, I mean, we basically spent the last 10 years with people saying Tesla's never going to work out. And you look at where we are today um, and you say, actually he didn't just see it coming. He made it come. And, and now in 2020 with everything else that's happening with COVID-19, um, we're also realizing that on the far side of this, we're going to see profound change because people are are going to insist upon that because all of a sudden the environmental agenda is taking even more of a central stage because if COVID-19 proves anything, it proves that the world is a small place, that we have to be kinder to each other, which means industry has to be kinder to our environment as well as kinder to its and users. And so, again, I come back to the fact that we're going through a period of rapid change and there's no point in saying, by people saying, but we have these existing systems and processes. None of the existing systems and processes are fit for purpose in what's coming over the horizon. We've mm-hmm. got to reinvent ourselves. And that's why, uh, you know, I'm quite passionate about this topic that I've seen before my eyes within the industry that I've worked in
0: all my life. Perfect. So, well, let's, let's kind of pivot to what is coming over the horizon, right? So I guess on one level, as we have many Formula One enthusiasts, uh, you know, who listen to the and on today, what are the changes you see happening within Formula One if you look five and 10 years out? And then more broadly, how do you see industry trends in general? Um, and then kind of the follow-on I'm going to ask after that is, you know, and I, to kind of pick up on your comments around Elon Musk, is that is there's a, the leadership plays a critical role, right? They create that culture. Um, and you said, you know, again, Elon Musk created the change he wanted to see, right? He made electrification happen, right? Know? So again, I know you work a lot with senior leaders and senior executives. So kind of your comments on, you know, how do how do well-established leaders adapt or, you know, or do you need to bring in new leaders, right? A bit of you know, some commentary around leadership based on those trends and kind of changes you see happening.
1: Well, if you go back to the point that I made about the evolution of esports, electronic sports mm-hmm. within Formula One, vir- virtual environment, um, no one in Formula One over the age of 40 has much experience of that. It's, it's a kind of alien concept. So if you look at the guy who's leading... Formula One's esports business. He's in his late 20s. Uh, very, very bright guy. If you look at the people who are leading that revolution in our industry, they are young people because they've grown up with that technology, yeah. with that industry. And by the way, they also have a vision of the world they want to live in in 20, 30, 40 years time, which a lot of older leaders maybe maybe don't. So I think there's a really interesting story about looking to the, looking to youth In business, and of course, again, in a lot of a lot of societies, there's a belief that you can't get into a senior position until you're much older and you've got lots of experience behind you. I think that that's being completely upended uh, at the moment. It should be upended because actually, we need to know um, from our younger colleagues the their thought processes, the things that excite them, uh, how. How they can attract customers of their age into our business. The demands are much clearer from that from that audience. I know that from my own children. Their behaviours, their consumer habits, are very different from mine. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a real piece there about leadership teams really looking at who's sitting on your management groups, who's sitting on your board. Where can you go and find out? So diversity. You know, there's a great lot of thought, talk about diversity in terms of uh, equality of the sexes and of bringing ethnic minorities in into mm-hmm. organizations around the world but for me the big topic here is really diversity of thinking so we need people who represent all ages all backgrounds because that's the real world that we are selling and marketing into so diversity of thought at the top of an organization is incredibly important given the changes that that are going on. So just to go talk through some of the the points that you asked in your question. From a Formula One perspective, let's take the next 10 years. So the next 10 years are going to see, first of all, Formula One achieve carbon neutrality. Now, the carbon neutral strategy was outlined November of last year, so it's a -hmm. a year old. The sport in 2019 generated 270,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide, and most of that was from freighting 500 tonnes of equipment around the world and running big, big sports events packed full of spectators who... Mm -hmm use single use plastic and drive to events and all that kind of stuff. So here's a big ambitious target that we have set ourselves 2030 carbon neutrality. That's going to be achieved through a whole range of things, taking much less equipment and people to races. Carbon offsets will provide some part of it, but there's going to be a real meaningful shift away from being a net contributor to the carbon in the atmosphere to being a zero contributor. And the probably principle amongst that is that from 2026 onwards, we're going to see a move away from fossil fuels uh, completely. So in Formula One today, we currently have a hybrid powertrain. We're going to move to having a powertrain that is not going to feature power. Energy will not be in the form of fossil fuels uh, taken out of the ground. So we're looking at synthetic fuels, specifically Mm -hmm. synthetic fuels created through carbon capture. So actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and turning that into a synthetic fuel. Now, what a cool technology. Can you imagine that Formula One powered by the carbon that we pulled back out of the atmosphere? That would be a great outcome. And so I know a number of of my colleagues, engineering colleagues are working on projects of that kind, looking at the pe- the potential use of hydrogen with uh, mm-hmm. within within, um, within our energy uh, ecosystem uh, as well. So there is going to be a really big transformation. And so when you talk to Formula One fans and media and Formula One executives today, we know that we're going to go through a, pe- a, a period of profound change where mm-hmm. the internal combustion engine... Will be left behind and we will evolve into a completely new era, which is much more appropriate uh, to the 21st century when we then look outside of our industry into broader uh, industry and I'll sort of keep on this topic of mobility the electrification revolution that we're seeing in transport mm-hmm. is going to accelerate. And, uh, I'm going to share just one, one data point with you just from the United Kingdom. And obviously I'm speaking to you today from Oxford. So in the last, um, in the last week, the four largest fleets of, of vehicles on the road of the UK, which is by British telecom and by Centrica, which is uh, basically British gas uh, plus one of the, the two of the biggest delivery logistics delivery companies, DPD and the Royal Mail. So those four companies between them have half a million vehicles on the roads of the UK. And they have announced in the last week that they've asked the government to make it mandatory for all vehicles to be electric by 2030. That's a nine years time. Wow. Now, if you've got fleet operators of that size, who have, they have now determined that their fleets are going fully electric. This is going to rapidly change the, the landscape in our economy over the next year. If you think about the energy sector, think yeah. about infrastructure, you think about tr- road transportation, thinking about the automotive companies. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson, the prime minister, um, has accepted that. And so the government have now announced that instead of 2035 being their focus for electrification, they're going to bring that forward by a whole five years. So we're going to see significant changes uh, happening. And I I think, you know, it's really interesting to see how often people have a discussion where they, they debate this change. Like, is this going to happen? And how long is it going to Mm -hmm. take? Well, it, it's a non-negotiable now. It's, it's just happening. And the speed of the change is going to be faster than some people are happy with, but it's going to be fast. And uh, the demand is there. And so we, we know that in Formula One, we're going to see big challenges for our automotive industry partners, for Mercedes-Benz, for Renault, for Fiat Group, etc., Honda, etc. We also look to our partners in the energy sector. So if you think of the big companies that are involved in Formula One, like BP, uh, Shell, um, Petronas, of course, Aramco, Mm -hmm. I mean, big, massive energy companies, We know they're going to go, be going through big changes as well. So here we have some pretty big stuff that's going to happen in short order. It feels almost like a war and uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of a, it's kind of a war against uh, you know, the climate change and mm-hmm. the, the, there's a, a growing recognition that many of the technological solutions already exist and it's just a qu- question of, of pivoting. And the the pivot, how quickly can that pivot happen? But it is going to occur, and that's um, so. I think for Formula One, and then looking outside into the broader world, the, the, there is there's going to be the story of this decade that uh, lies in front of us.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Mark. And um, you know, to the to the listeners, you know, we'll we'll open it up for Q and A after. I've got one last question for Mark, so please feel free to use the Q and A function or if you'd prefer, you can use the chat function to just raise some questions. But, you know, Mark, you've talked again a lot about some successful pivots, that culture of innovation, um, and again, that uh, how Formula One has created comparative advantage at times within particular race teams. Half the time though, I think, or maybe even a majority of the time, our learning comes from failure. So can you talk about uh, a time when Despite perhaps a great culture that embraces innovation, um, there was a pivot that didn't work and why it didn't work.
1: Oh, wow. Now you're asking me for, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting one. So we we have a s- saying, uh, failure fuels future success. Um, so every time we fail, we learn something really interesting about ourselves, about our organization, about the technology. And then when you do something with that, you you achieve success into the future now there's a key attribute there and that is you have to be honest open and transparent about your failures so failure is not about blaming the individual failure is about blaming the problem and analyzing the problem and um i have a i have a podcast that i do and on my my new episode which is not yet out i've got the chief technical officer of mercedes-benz f1 and the commander of the United States Navy Strike uh, Force. He was previously head of Top Gun, which I think most people have heard of. And uh, Chris and James just have a conversation at one point about the way in which they're constantly analysing failure and mistakes Mm -hmm. and creating a culture where they, they just debrief every day on where did we go wrong. And even if they win, I mean, here's the really interesting thing. In fact, maybe even especially when they win, you know, so when you win a Formula One race by five seconds, you usually find it in the debrief. They're talking about the fact that the, the the algorithms show that we should have won the race by fifteen seconds. So where did we lose that ten seconds? We won the race, but we didn't win it by as much of a margin as we as we should have. So there's there's an obsession mm-hmm. uh, uh, with that. Um, I mean, I, I'll give you an example of a. Uh, I have to think of whether this is appropriate or not to your question, but a very bright engineer in Formula One a number of years ago, uh, Gordon Murray, uh, he came up with the idea that, you know, aerodynamics are fundamental to, to the way a Formula One car works. Essentially, the whole car is an inverted wing. So instead of generating lift, it generates downforce. And so he came up with a very bright idea. And his bright idea was to fit a fan to the back of the car driven by the gearbox and effectively what you were looking at was a 360 kilometer per hour dyson or hoover it was uh, <laughs> it was the ultimate vacuum cleaner and it was incredible i mean it worked it was in fact it worked so well that not only was the car able to go around 90 degree corners almost flat out um, but it did actually vacuum up everything under the car and blow it out the back, which meant that anyone trying to follow that car got a lot of debris uh, <laughs> over them. So so two things happened in short order. First of all, they won the first race they ever did with that car. And the second thing is that the regulator banned it <laughs> 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 straight straight away. And, and the thing was that when he had explained to the regulator the technology, the regulator wasn't quite sure that it would work. So they were kind of, yeah, well, you know, you can try it, and we'll, we'll monitor it. Well, they monitored it for about five seconds and decided this is not a good idea. Yeah. But, but but the interesting thing is that um, you know that kind of whole goes back to the whole kind of risk uh, risk analysis when you're looking to to innovate. Uh, there's a question that's already come up on the screen from um, Edward um, Mülhaupt uh, about. Uh, nurturing innovations to improve financial performance I've I've seen I've seen a lot of great ideas in terms of innovations in Formula One be proposed and suggested without sufficient thought to the to the actual financial cost the implications for the company mm-hmm. and that that cost benefit has to be there and I mentioned you know the, I, I quite often talk about the fact that you know, in relative terms, we work in, a, in an environment of scarcity today. We yep. don't, we don't have as much money available to us today as we did uh, maybe in, in previous decades, and so there is this absolute need to understand that you can't, you can't always quickly pivot if it's going to break the bank. You know, it's there has to be an understanding that we don't have unlimited resources. So all everything we're talking about has to be within the context that you're trying to safeguard the business's day to day operations and make sure that you're not going to bet the whole thing on some change of direction that may or may not happen. And this is why I mentioned that the importance of innovation being in a controlled planned way where you yeah. you test and you try and you risk, but you test and you try and you take risk in a controlled fashion, which means that you're only going to deploy it if you can see that that's going to you know, fundamentally work and i think going back to the elon musk thing we we talked mm-hmm. about you know when i think about what he did way back 14 15 years ago which was to take someone else's existing car and simply stick a battery in it i mean it was a it was a very low risk way of improving the potential for for his his technologies, you know, what it was kind of showcasing mm-hmm. where he wanted to go for it with it. But that then gave him enough confidence because that those initial products were really impressive. That's what then gave him the confidence to go out and raise the funds to to take this thing on to a whole new level.
0: Yeah. And then we've got a question from Robert Riley. So with the stage gate development of new ideas from inception through to benchtop to pilot to regulatory reveal, how do you speed up the process and how do you overcome some barriers one might face in that in that process
1: yeah i mean it's well so f- first of all uh the so james allison who's the technical director at, at mercedes-benz um his his innovation working group is called the the, the performance working group and uh, he was talking to me about that last week and he said basically we have you know, we have people on that working group from every facet of the technical operations in the team, but also from finance and IT. You know, CIO is very much at the center of uh, some of the decisions that are being made as well because so much of the of it is either data-driven or requires the, the deployment of uh, IT infrastructure to help us with the, with the implementation of it. So you've got all the key stakeholders on board. And one of the things which then is done is to is to create a flow of work parallel to the main business, which which accelerates the intro, introduction of those uh, innovations so that it's not, it's not kicked into the long grass, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's not a question of, uh, well, just go away and have a look at it and, you know, come back in a month's time. It's, it's more, go do it now. Let's meet on Friday morning and see where you've got to. And, um, you know, we, 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 uh, You know, James and I were talking about the the sense of urgency. And I I think this is a really interesting point. Mm -hmm. And that because the granular detail of Formula One is a race, so it's a race against your competitors, a physical race against your competitors where you are judged, you know, live on TV by hundreds of millions of people every two weeks because that drives a real sense of urgency. And I think that Mm -hmm. in industry, you find that people are aware of the fact that they're in in a competitive landscape. But you know, you never see a, you you can't switch on the TV on Sunday and see GSK racing Sanofi and Roche Pharmaceutical to get a virus uh, vaccine by four p.m. Can you imagine if you did? You know, the reality is that every industry needs to understand there there should be a sense of urgency. In that in the work to, to gain competitive advantage, so rather than say, you know, yeah, there's there's impediments. Actually, what are those impediments? Is that is that people? Is it systems? Is it processes? Why have you got those that bureaucracy? Break it down, get it out of the way, and that's why James says, you know, within Mercedes, they essentially they they have this the kind of I suppose in football it would be like the striker. You know, they have this group of people who are tasked with accelerating. The proof of concept of technologies and solutions that can then be rapidly deployed and implemented, and it means that at any point in time they have short, medium, and long-term innovation programs. But it means that that pipeline of innovation is constantly being refilled, and that's what's essential uh, to doing it. And you know, I really appreciate that question, but, but my overwhelming answer comes down to, you know, culture. It's a way in which leaders empower people to. Deliver with a sense of urgency and, of course, provide them with the the space and the time to do that. Because clearly, if you wrap everyone up in your day to day operations, you're never going to have a striker out there scoring the goal for the business.
0: So, again, it sounds like you have mostly worked in, and I'm going to just kind of pick up on that comment around culture, right? Is again the old adage, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it is, it is critical. Yet a lot of organizations are very, while they recognize its relevance and perhaps even its criticality, they are poor at managing it, right? Yeah. So in your experience, two questions here, how have you measured or have you measured culture? And then how have you managed it to ensure that, again, especially in a hyper-competitive environment where, you know, and I think the fact that, yeah, every two weeks you are judged by 100 million people, are yeah. you the best or not? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the,
1: so the interest, I mean, if you take measure, I mean, I think sitting on the board of directors of a company is always interesting because, you know, whenever you have the board meeting, you usually get presented with, uh, you know, lots of pre-reads and, uh-huh. and, and I I've, I've always found it really interesting to, to, to look at sometimes the the less obvious stuff, because I think, You know, for all the right reasons, people tend to go straight to the financials. Where are we this week, this month, this quarter? I mean, take staff turnover. You know, how many people how many people are you losing? Uh, How many people are you having to recruit? You know, what's happening in terms of staff turnover, staff numbers? What's happening in terms of staff engagement? So, for example, we do staff engagement surveys on a regular basis. Uh, we need to know that our people are aligned. If there, mm-hmm. if there isn't alignment but amongst our people, I mean, it's very difficult for, for someone to captain a ship if everyone's trying to row in different directions. We've got to, there's got to be alignment there. So, you know, literally the welfare and happiness of our people is an incredibly important thing. Um, and if you look at the successful teams in Formula One, you find much lower levels of staff turnover, you see leadership teams who stay there for actually a relatively long period of time. Red Bull Racing, for example, today, their chief executive and their CTO have been there for 16 years. Now, in big industrial organizations, one of the things that's quite profound is to me is a turnover in senior staff. And of course, the trouble is the trouble is if senior management are moving on every two to three years, either within the company or moving out of the company. Mm-hmm they're only ever taking a two to three year look at things. Whereas actually we need to have a longer term view on things because yes, of course, as I said, we've got these short term, you know, immediate operational requirements, but you know, the, the big picture about the long-term health of the business needs a, a little bit more vision than that. And so mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, executives here are looking at quarterly results and thinking, well, you know, I'm only, I'm only going to be here for, you know, 12 quarters. I mean, really is that the right way to be to be running a business? We, we need we need a much more embedded, focused commitment to the business long term, and so I think that's a really you know really important factor for us. Um, the the reality is that um, I feel sh- I feel sure that in this landscape of change, Cavi, that we have that it's it's the stayers, it's the people who who stay the course and and are constantly learning, looking outside of their business to to take that curiosity and and explore, you know, what's coming up? There are so many things that are going to affect us. What's coming along that I can grab hold of? And that with our business and our core competencies, Mm -hmm. we can deliver value with that. And and it is very much down to looking at, you know, what are your, your core competencies? You know, in Formula One, we used to think, That our core competency was car racing and selling sponsorship to tobacco companies. You know, today, our core competency is creating amazing technologies, which we can then potentially sell into industry Mm -hmm. and putting on major global sporting events of the kind that that Saudi Arabia has just announced recently that's coming to uh, Jeddah uh, next year, you know, putting on world class sporting events uh, which we can export to countries uh, all over the world. So, you know, we have had to rethink what our core competencies are to deal with some of the big macro changes that are taking place in the world and evolve our businesses uh, over time. But to do that, our leadership teams have needed to stay the course mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, stay at the helm rather than rather than seeing all those changes. So I, I'm a great belief in, in team cohesion uh, over a period of time.
0: Okay. Perfect. So I know we're coming up to the top of the hour, but just two last questions for you before we have to uh, to end this wonderful conversation. Um, so the first one is around that core competency shift, right? Can you talk about how, again, what, for lack of a better word, empowered, enabled that recognition of we are, again, not about racing and you know, tobacco sponsorship. It's technology, and then it's about, you know, putting on wonderful events. Was it externally driven, internally driven, a balance, kind of what enabled, created the reality of questioning, reassessing that core competency?
1: I'm so pleased you asked me that, Kavi, because I would love to tell you that we were so bright that we all <laughs> sat down one day and and said, why don't we do something a bit different? Um, existential threat. Good. You know, if, if your business has an existential threat, it doesn't half force you to rethink what you're doing. And I remember sitting in my office in 2002 and opening the Financial Times newspaper and reading uh, a feature about the European Union's impending ban on tobacco sponsorship and advertising. And at that time, Formula One had about 70% of its revenue coming from, from the tobacco industry. Yep. Yep. And I remember distinctly reading that feature and putting it down, looking out the window of my office ac- across the workshop floor and wondering what all our staff would be doing in three years' time because I, I thought, well, we, we won't exist. This business can't survive this change. That's how I felt at that moment. Mm-hmm. That's just me as, a, as one executive. But I know that was being reflected across the industry. So we faced an existential threat because of regulation affecting our sector. And there was lots of doom and gloom. And there was lots of people saying, you know, we're not going to survive this. But effectively, what then began to materialize is is people started to think, well, what can we do? And Mm -hmm. very quickly realized Actually, sponsorship may diminish, but there are other things that we can make money out of. The, the, the most obvious thing for a Formula One team is that instead of building four cars and racing them on a racetrack, you go and build 4,000 cars and you sell them to the general public. And that's what McLaren did. So McLaren yep. diversified into becoming an automotive group. They got investment from uh, the Bahrain uh, Sovereign Fund. Yep. And um, and lo and behold, the McLaren group today is a, is a billion-dollar business And that's what they did. They diversified their offering. And then you saw that happen in teams like Williams and Red Bull Mm -hmm. Racing and the Alfa Romeo team and and so on and so forth. And actually, in hindsight, it wasn't that revolutionary because that's what Ferrari had been doing since 1948. They simply did Formula One as a marketing platform for the cars that they build and sell to high net worth individuals. Uh, around the world. But it took that crisis and the subsequent financial crisis of 2008 to make people realize that the old business model based on corporate sponsorship was effectively over and that we needed to find new diversified ways. I mean, quite frankly, to spread the risk by creating multiple revenue streams, which meant that we were no longer dependent on one type of customer or one sector, you know, for our survival as an organization. And then from a From a global Formula One perspective, the chief executive of Formula One, Bernie Eccleston, he knew that this was coming because he stays close to his customers. So he knew the tobacco industry was going to get banned in terms of uh, sponsorship and advertising. And he then decided to look at another sector that we could go in and compete in. And he realized that FIFA with the World Cup and the IOC with the Olympic Games have an amazing business model. I mean, if you think about it, Kavi, uh, every four years, there are a queue of governments waiting to bid to please let us have football or please let us have running and jumping for one month. And by the way, we will spend 20, 30, $40 billion building all the stadiums and infrastructure to have your event for one month. And then once the World Cup or the Olympic games leaves your country, having had their event, they, they don't come back again, not for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So you think yep. about that in terms of the spend on infrastructure versus what actually then happens. So Bernie Eccleston, as chief executive of Formula One, then thought, well, so the demand here is clear. Governments yep. want to have events that promote nationhood, that promote the country as a destination for business and for tourism, that provide an an economic benefit for the city where the event happens in terms of spectators and media coverage, puts us on the back page and the front page of newspapers and websites all over the world for a couple of weeks every year. And that's what Bernie then began to offer as a Formula One offering. So Formula One as a sporting event that's offered to governments around the world. First breakthrough was Malaysia. You know, Mm -hmm. Malaysia is not a big Formula One fan base, but the Malaysian government saw That actually, if they want to promote Kuala Lumpur as a really vibrant destination in Southeast Asia, Formula One would be a great way of putting it on the map. So they included the Formula One track in the infrastructure budget for the new KLIA uh, Mm -hmm. airport. Um, So Malaysia was followed by Beijing uh, coming to say, we want to have a race was in Shanghai, Uh, then Bahrain then Abu Dhabi, Singapore, and the rest is history. And so here you have over the last 20 years, the evolution of a sport because we we got out of the sponsorship business and into the global events business mm-hmm. up against up against the World Cup and uh, and the Olympic Games and the big difference in our business model is that instead of asking governments to to queue up and tender for having it just just tell us you want to have it you know tell yeah. us you want to have an event we'll sit down we'll put together a deal and instead of having it for one year for one month we'll give you a five year or a ten year. Ten-year contract, and it turns out, and of course, it's a lot less expensive than having either of those other big tournaments. So, so the reality is that, born out of necessity, you know, existential threats, shifts, economic circumstances at our control. It's repurposing the business and reevaluating what is it that we are good at, what else, what can we deliver for our customers, and who are those customers? And that's that's therefore. Part of the cycle of the Formula One uh, business community to this
0: day. Okay, well, for my own part, I'm very excited for the the Jeddah race. Um, so, quite like, willing towards the end of next year. Um, I guess final question for you before we have to to hop off, Mark, is so again, two part question. Number one, going big picture again. You know, you talked about kind of one of the existential threats is climate change, right? In the need yeah. to, you know, both for Formula One but industry at large. When you think about kind of industry at large, what are some of the other existential threats that you see out there over the next five to 10 years, number one? Then number two, based on your experience and expertise, what are some lessons learned or advice that you'd provide some of the, the leaders listening in?
1: Well, of course, the uh, I mean aside from climate change, the the other ex- existential threat that's on Everyone's minds at the moment is not just the current global pandemic, but now that we have had one, is the potential for the next one. And you know, I think you know, I'm speaking to you obviously from from here in Europe. You know, we didn't uh, we didn't really suffer from the SARS mm-hmm. pandemic or from bird, the bird flu pandemic. And when you go go back and look at it, actually, there have been the there's been the potential for a global pandemic about every three to four years throughout this century. So the reality is that, you know, potentially we could have another one in 2024, 2025. There are not many bricks and mortar businesses that are gonna be able to survive that. You know, the retail environment in Europe has been decimated by this global pandemic. And it's arguable that it's actually never gonna recover because if you talk to anyone in the online retail space, they will say, well, actually our business is now five years ahead of where we thought it would Mm -hmm. be because of the shift Online, I know that personally, as a as an older consumer, you know, I had traditional buying habits until this year. I now am fully online. I'll never go back. So, you know, the shifts are going. These 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 shifts are going to continue occurring. I think climate change is a really interesting thing because the the climate the climate scientists. Um, And I follow a lot of them on on social media and I read read quite avidly about this topic because I am fortunate to have a home in Australia. And as you know, Australia was devastated by um, uh, really quite extraordinary fires uh, last year. Um, The thing that I find really interesting is that the the scientists necessarily present the data and the data is pretty gloomy. And it's therefore essentially a negative story. And mm-hmm. it's, hard, it's hard to open the paper or to, to go on an app and read the news about climate without feeling pretty dejected with the outcome. And yet, when you look at what you and I have been talking about for the last hour, you know, innovation, creativity, agility, speed, the reality is that we know that if you take the, the counter view and see it as opportunity, that actually where the big shifts are going to occur is a move away from fossil fuel into renewables, that that fossil fuels are going to be with us for some time in a number of different industries, but the use of fossil fuels in in the sense that we have had from the last century are really going to fundamentally change. And so we no longer talk about peak oil. We talk about peak usage of fossil fuels. You know, that's what's going to change. And so there's huge opportunity in that. And so everything from infrastructure and construction through to, um, you know, networks and uh, the development of, of smart cities mm-hmm. uh, of energy efficiency oh, The whole thing around energy e- efficiency just completely fascinates me because, you know, when I look at, when I look at formula one today, you know, in 10 years, Cavi, we have reduced the amount of fossil fuel we use for the same performance We have reduced our reliance on fossil fuel by fifty percent. Okay, fifty percent. I mean, when when I look back, it's exceptional what has been achieved. That's what happens when people are faced with a non-negotiable, and climate change is a non-negotiable. So, if there are people who are saying, "Well, we can sit on our hands and see what's going to happen," you know, you're history. You're in reverse gear. The fact is, this is a non-negotiable. And going back to my earlier point. The new generations coming up, you know, the millennials, Gen mm-hmm. Z, Gen Alpha, they demand it. And so that's 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 what's going to, you know, for me, there's going to be the big shifts uh, that are going to be ahead. I mean, it, it's almost head spinning stuff when you consider what's going to happen over uh, the next 10 years. My son works in the space sector. Yeah. Um and has come from airbus and when you look at aerospace and you look at the space sector and what we're going to see in the next 10 years man back in the, man and woman back in the moon uh, my son is working on the moon to mars program yep. you know there is there is a ton of things out there which when we finally lift our heads off the desk post covid and look at what's ahead there is huge opportunity out yep. out there and i think climate change is a challenge but it's a challenge that has a massive opportunity for those who are willing to go out and develop the smart solutions which society demands. And because yep. society demands it, you know what? The money's going to be there uh, to back it up.